I've got to tell you, I'm excited to preach this message this morning. Um, I think that some of the things I'm going to share with you today um, may not be new. Like if, you know, pastor ever sends up and say, hey, I have all new information for you and you've been in church for 30 years, that's not a good moment for the preacher or for you. Um, but there's just an excitement in my heart today of some of the things that I want to teach you. And the reason is, is because I believe that God wants to break down, hear me, God wants to break down some of the walls in your heart this morning. And God wants to set you free today. So I'm not going to use the word freedom much during my message, but I want you to know that I believe that is God's heart for us this morning, that we would be a free people. Jesus said that when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. I also want to acknowledge this morning that this topic is a little bit weird, especially if you're not in church a lot. We're going to talk about spiritual warfare. And you might think about 20 minutes into the message or 12 seconds that these people are a little kooky. I get that. This is a bit of a strange topic. We don't talk about these things as much. But keep your heart open. I'll start with some incredibly hard things to say. But we're not going to stay in this vein the whole day. So you'll be a little depressed, but we won't stay there forever. On October 2nd of last year, I sat in the Philadelphia International Airport with 22 people from Spring Valley Community Church getting ready to fly down to Houston, Texas to do relief work after Hurricane Harvey hit Houston. After we made it through security and we were getting to our gate, we watched in horror as we were confronted with the news that the night before Stephen Paddock opened fire from the 32nd story of the Mandalay Bay Hotel and Casino, killing 58 people who were attending a country music concert. Many of us know that on September 11, 2001, 19 Middle Eastern men boarded four different planes, hijacked them, and three of the four of them flew into buildings, killing over 3,000 people in one day. Between April and June of 1994, an estimated 800,000 Rwandans were killed in the space of 100 days during a grotesque act of ethnic cleansing. And during the reign of Adolf Hitler, six million Jews were murdered during the Holocaust. We have a hard time coping with the depth of evil. Like many modern Western people, we are uncomfortable with the notion of the existence of evil because we are too sophisticated for that. We prefer to explain everything that's wrong in the world using psychiatric, psychological, and sociological reasons. We prefer natural and scientific explanations over spiritual ones. And just so we're clear, Sometimes scientific and natural explanations are extremely appropriate. However, when horrific events take place, we ask questions that we assume mean that when someone does something evil, it's because they didn't get enough hugs from their dad. And all of us know that not only is there evil in the world out there, even if we try to explain it away, all of us know there is darkness in our own hearts, don't we? Our pride, our resentment of authority, 
our desire for glory, our proclivity to perversion, and the way we compare ourselves to others to avoid the reality of who we are. There is not only darkness in our own hearts, there is darkness out there. We don't like to deal with evil because if we acknowledge its existence, we are forced to agree that a moral absolute exists in the world. See, if we acknowledge the reality of evil, that means that something is actually evil and something else is actually good. And when something is actually evil, that means that there has to be some kind of accountability for that evil. Interestingly, our culture is one of the only ones that fails to recognize the personal nature of evil and the existence of Satan and demons. In Latin American, African, and Asian cultures, the existence of the spiritual world is readily acknowledged as a part of life. But of course, they're not as smart as we are. We went to college and we listened to podcasts. They're weird. I believe evil and Satan and demons exist because Jesus did. Throughout his ministry, he was regularly interacting with demonic beings, and he was tempted by Satan himself. And there are really two extremes when it comes to dealing with the spiritual reality of evil beings. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in the Screw Tape Letters. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Lewis is saying that on the one hand, some of us tend to totally underestimate the existence of Satan and demons. Everything can be explained away, and thus spiritual warfare is not necessary. On the other hand, some Christians tend to overestimate the power of Satan and attribute everything difficult in life to the devil. Have you met these people? Every car problem, illness, and elected official in office we don't like is of the devil. For years, some in the church who have struggled with mental illness haven't been, well cared, haven't been well cared for because it's assumed that all of it has a spiritual cause. So in the name of faith, some are instructed not to take medication or talk to their doctor about their depression or anxiety because that reveals a lack of faith. We do not believe that at Spring Valley Community Church. The problem with both denying the existence of and an excessive fascination with demonic forces is that it reduces the reality of evil. If you overblow what evil can do or if you undersell it, it reduces reality. So this morning we're going to look at what the New Testament teaches us about Satan. Some of us are wondering, aren't we still in a series on Ephesians? Yes, but we'll get there in a few moments. I want to share with you four things the New Testament teaches about Satan and demons. Here they are. Number one, he is a liar. Satan is a liar. Jesus was having an argument with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were saying, Jesus, you're of the devil, 
And Jesus responds to the Pharisees, you belong to your father, the devil. Isn't it nice that Jesus was always so kind, gentle, meek, nice, always plastered a smile on his face and winked at people's sin. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan's primary MO is lying. Jesus calls him the father of lies because what Satan loves to do is mislead, misinform, and deceive. Satan lies to us about what God said, who God is, and who you and I are called to be in Christ. This was his exact tactic in the Garden of Eden when Satan first shows up in Genesis 3. Listen to the lies. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? God never said that. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You're not going to die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And isn't that the lie that Satan continues to feed to some of us today? We think we know better than God. God would not judge. God would not pour out his wrath. God would not return in glory to defeat his enemies. No. Even though Jesus was painfully clear and the Apostle Paul was painfully clear about the reality of hell and the existence of judgment, we prefer a sanitized, more sophisticated God because the evil one is whispering to us, you know better than God. How could he be so mean? Let's recreate him in our image. The Apostle Paul tells us that Satan is so deceptive that he masquerades as an angel of light. He tries to convince us that his ways and his ideas are good and beautiful and that God's ways are restrictive and destructive. Satan is ultimately a twister of truth, and how Satan loves to work is he loves to take the skin of a truth and stuff it with a lie. Here's the second thing about Satan. His goal is to destroy you. John 10.10, Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I am here so that you may have life and have it to the full. Satan is after one thing in your life, church, your total destruction. His desire is to destroy your relationship with God, steal your joy, and ultimately see you spend your life separated from Christ. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5.8, be self-controlled and alert. Or another way to put that is, wake up. Stop being so apathetic and blind to how Satan works. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to cuddle. No, looking for someone to devour. Satan wants to kill you, destroy you, 
and lull you to sleep so he can eat your heart out. Satan lies in wait to take out the people of God and lead them astray into their spiritual death. He is not harmless, he is not to be taken lightly, and we would be foolish to misunderstand his tactic of drawing us away from life with Christ by distorting the truth. However, the good news is the New Testament is wonderfully clear about this. That's why I don't preach this morning in fear. Jesus has defeated Satan. Jesus has defeated Satan. 1 John 3, 8 says this, He who does what is sinful is of the devil. Now, that doesn't mean if you sinned this week, you're of the devil. It means that if you are in a perpetual habit of unrepentant sin, you're of the devil. It means that when you do sin, your allegiance has shifted from Christ to Satan. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus Christ has come to decisively defeat and disarm Satan. We aren't people who live in fear and intimidation of Satan and demons because our Savior has already won the war that Satan waged against God before time began. And what specific aspect of the devil's work was destroyed by Christ? His work of keeping us enslaved to sin and accusing us before God that we are unworthy of salvation and God's grace and mercy. Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Paul says to the church, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, that's Satan and his demons, having disarmed them, he made a public spectacle of them. He dragged them through the streets showing this defeated enemy. How did Jesus triumph? By the cross. When Christ died for our sins, Satan was disarmed and defeated. The one eternally destructive weapon that Satan has stripped from his hand was his accusation before God that we are guilty and worthy of the same judgment he is. However, when Christ died and when Christ rose, the accusation that Satan had against you, that you were unrighteous, deserving of judgment, and you have failed and dishonored God by your sin, and he wants nothing to do with you because you've broken God's law. The accusation was nullified by Christ. All those who entrust themselves to Christ will never perish. Satan cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ because Jesus has defeated him. But here's the fourth thing we need to wrestle with. We must battle against Satan. We must battle against him. The whole idea of spiritual warfare is the final topic that Paul covers in the letter to the Ephesian church. And listen to what Paul says about our spiritual battle, starting in chapter 6, verse 10 through verse 13. 
Paul says this to the church. Finally. You're like, finally, yeah, we've been talking about Ephesians since January. Finally. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, I want to say something about verse 12. Sometimes people make a whole theology about different kinds of demons different rankings of demons, and they point to this verse that Paul is saying there's four different kinds of demons. There's rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Some people say, yeah, Paul is saying there's a hierarchy of demons, and we need to know how to fight each one, and I would say that's not at all what Paul is doing here. Paul is simply stacking descriptive language to describe how Satan works, in order to emphasize to us that he still works. And he is still working through people. He is still working through structures. He is still working on our hearts, trying to draw us away from Christ. He's also pointing that these demonic forces are powerful, but in Christ we have the power to stand against them. There are some people who build a whole theology of demons around this verse, And I would just say this lovingly, that a lot of that is conjecture and guessing. I don't think we need to think about demons in different hierarchies and orders. I think we need to think about demons as demons, that they're still active and they are still trying to draw away the people of God. Verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand. So here's a tension we have to face, right? Christ has defeated Satan, and yet we still have to battle against what Paul calls the devil's schemes. Satan has been disarmed and stripped of his power, and Jesus has all authority over him. However, he remains like a fugitive on the run who has been found guilty, and it's only a matter of time before he is locked away for good. So here's this weird tension. Satan is defeated, he is conquered, but he's still on the loose. And his day of reckoning will come. And because he's still on the loose as a defeated enemy, we have to stand. We have to stand against him. That's why Paul tells us to be strong in the Lord, to put on the armor of God, and stand our ground against him. So what kind of spiritual warfare are you and I most likely to deal with? Now I wanna say just a caveat here. What I'm about to talk about for the rest of my message is not the only battleground for spiritual warfare. Okay, like I know that there's things such as demonic oppression and there's casting out of demons. I understand that those things are very real and I affirm that that's a spiritual battle that's fought. But there is something in the text 
that Paul says that actually tells us the nature of the spiritual battlefield that most of us are going to be fight, or excuse me, that all of us are going to be fighting if we never cast out a demon. So this is going to be very practical. He uses two words to describe how Satan works. He talks about the devil's schemes the devil's schemes. The word Paul uses here for devil is diabolos, which means slanderer. Again, the devil is a liar and an accuser. He loves to slander the people of God. And the word scheme means strategy. And this strategy is kind of the picture of a calculated ambush where our enemy plans to attack us when we are totally unaware of it. We saw that in what Peter says, our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. That's his strategy, to be secret, to be secretive, to be a hunter, to take us out. So there's an aspect of how the devil works, that he lies to us, and that he has a strategy of lying against us. So what are the two primary ways? That Satan lies to you and I. Two words. Temptation and accusation. Temptation and accusation. In temptation, he is lying to us about the destructive nature of sin and the holiness of God. In his accusations, he is lying to us about the love of God for us. Satan knows how to play you. Satan knows how to play me. Whatever sins your heart is most prone to, the devil wants to push you towards them. The devil does not make a good person bad. He makes a flawed person worse. When when, uh, Thomas Brooks was a Puritan preacher, and he wrote a book in the 1600s called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And the whole premise of the book is that how Satan works is through tempting us and accusing us. And what I love about the book is that Thomas Brooks actually outlines 12 ways that the devil tempts us and a whole bunch of other ways how he accuses us. I want to share seven ways that Satan tempts us from this book and see if any of these ring true in your life. Here's one way that Satan works. He loves to show you the bait and hide the hook. He loves to show you the bait. Hey, if you do this, it's going to feel amazing. If you do this, you're going to get ahead. Hey, you know what? This is actually what you want. You've had a tough day. You need to unwind. Everyone indulges once in a while. Nobody's perfect. Satan loves to tempt us to indulge in behaviors that destroy us. They feel good initially. They might take the pain away for a moment, but we end up with a hook in our hearts. Satan loves to use sin to destroy you. What about this one? Rationalizing sin as virtue. Take greed, for example. You can hang on to all you have 
and justify not living a generous life because you are just trying to be responsible and care for your family. That doesn't sound like Satan's voice. That sounds like what I always tell myself. Right. Because Satan knows the strings of your heart are around money. So he's calling responsibility of not being generous with God and others a virtue. What about this one in our culture today about rationalizing sin as virtue? What about our culture's fascination with love? And some in Christianity championing only the love of God. I think one of Satan's tactics today is to convince us that the love of God is really whatever we define it to be. And love really is the most important thing of all. And not God's definition of love, but our own definition of love. Like if two people really love each other, who am I to stand in their way? I want to live a virtuous life of love. Meaning I'm fine with whatever, whatever people want to do as long as they love. That's not God. That's Satan. Or we rename pride and arrogance as being authentic. Just trying to be authentic. Stuck in our pride, not realizing how arrogant we sound. What about this one? He shows you the sins of Christian leaders. Well, if that man or woman of God struggles with sin, surely it's no big deal if you do it too. How many times have you done something you know you should not have done because someone who was higher on the food chain and church leadership did it? How often have you used the behavior of someone who you perceived as righteous and upright as an excuse to sin against God? Number four, what about overstressing the mercy of God? God is so gracious, gracious and he will forgive me and he loves you and I'm going to do this now and ask for forgiveness later. I've never done that before. Maybe you have. Satan's never tempted me with that before. God, you're so merciful. I can do this and I'll just get on my knees later and pretend everything's fine. Or how about bitterness over suffering? Have you ever thought about how your bitterness is a temptation from Satan? You probably may not, you may not realize it, that the bitterness in your heart is not from God, but it's a temptation from Satan trying to lead you into a life of bitterness because life has not gone your way. How could God be good if he's letting you suffer? I thought he was a good, good father. Don't you sing that at your church? Wouldn't the good, good father not allow this really bad, bad thing to happen? Hmm. Man, I came to Spring Valley, and I signed up to follow Jesus, and I started tithing, and I started serving, and I still got cancer. I thought following Jesus meant an easy life. Satan knows if you're prone to bitterness prone to wallowing in your self-pity over how life is not turning out how you thought it should. He loves to tempt you into bitterness. Because when you're bitter, you can't serve Christ and love people well because you're so into yourself. That's better than serving Christ. What about this one? Showing Christians how many bad people have great lives. Why do the richest 
people in the world seem to care about God the least. Why? Like, Satan might tempt you to look at your neighbor who's doing amazing and you can't keep up with the Joneses. And they don't go to church. They get to keep all their money. They have a nicer car than you. They redid their kitchen before you. They might be beautiful. Their kids might be well-behaved and on the honor roll. And you're over here gutting it out with Jesus. Why would a good God allow people who really have no time for him, why would a good God allow you not to have an awesome life too? Poor you. What about this one? Getting you to compare one part of your life to another. Well, I'm really knocking it out of the park with my devotions. I opened up my YouVersion app and I've read the Bible 127 straight days. It even tells me my streak, my righteousness streak. Look how steady and disciplined I am. 127 days in a row. <laughs> I'm doing pretty good with my devotions. It's all right if I let this slide. I'm a mostly good person. You deserve it. All I did was serve my kids and husband and fold laundry and do dishes all week. God understands if I drink a little bit too much. I deserve it. After all, we're free in Christ, right? Like, what's a little too much alcohol on the weekend? After the kids are in bed. That doesn't hurt anyone. Come on, indulge. Don't raise your hand. But do you notice any of these in your life? Do you see how subtly Satan lies to us? And he tempts us to rebel against God and break his heart and hurt ourselves. What about Satan's accusations? How does Satan accuse us? Three of them. He keeps us looking at our sin instead of our Savior. How often are you reminded of your failures of the past? How often are you regularly thinking about all of your regrets, wishing you would have done something differently as Satan whispers to you, your past sin disqualifies you from God's love today and you are unworthy? Satan never reminds us of the mercy and the grace and the love and the kindness of God. He doesn't remind us of the death of Christ for our sin. Instead, he heaps condemnation on us instead of telling us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The other way Satan accuses us is he tells us our troubles are punishment from God. The reason you're sick, the reason you're unemployed, the reason your loved one was taken from you is because God is angry with you. That thing you did back five years ago, this hard time is punishment for that. If you would have lived a better, more Christ-exalting life, this never would have happened. God is punishing you. Accusation. And here's the third way. Satan wants us to think our inner struggles prove we aren't Christians. Oh, you're struggling with sin? You failed God. You're not the real thing. You're a fake. You're a pretender. You're just religious. God's done with you. 
Do you know what comes with accusation? Shame. Shame. Satan loves to keep you in a place of shame. Notice when you're in a place of shame, you're not living an outward life focused on the mission of Jesus and loving the people around you. See, what Satan loves to do is keep us recoiled on ourselves, disabled to do anything for God because we feel so unworthy, or he tries to entrap us and enslave us to sin. So what are we to do in the face of the devil's schemes? Paul tells us. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. You may be able to stand your ground in the face of temptation and accusation. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You have been equipped by God to fight Satan. You have been equipped by God to fight temptation and accusation with truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the Word of God. In the face of temptation, we stand on the truth of who God is. And when the accusations come, we stand on who God says we are in Christ. In the face of temptation, we stand on the righteousness God has called us to live out. And in the face of accusation, we stand on the righteousness we have in Christ. In the face of temptation and accusation, we remember that it's through the gospel that we have been given peace with God. In the face of temptation, we stand on the reality that salvation means a call to holy living. And in the face of accusation, we stand not on our own works, our own righteousness. We stand on the free gift of salvation we never earned by our behavior. And in the face of temptation, we stand in faith. We stand in faith as Satan hurls his flaming arrows at us and he shows us the goodness of sin while hiding its destructive power. We say in faith that God's commands always lead to life. When I obey him, he has my joy in his heart. He wants my life to be filled with good things. And the only way to experience the life that God has for us is to say no to temptation, even when it's hard, even when you feel like you don't have the power to. But God says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Do you know that in you, when you became a Christian, you had the same power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead living in you this morning. You are not powerless. You are not enslaved. You are set free in Jesus' name from sin, from temptation, from accusation. Christ has purchased it. Christ has defeated Satan. You are not a victim. You are a victor in Christ Jesus. Do not hang your head in defeat. Stand in victory against the evil one. Christ is for you. He is not against you. You are deeply loved. Sin will ruin your life, but God has given you his spirit so that you can stand. You are not enslaved. 
We are free people in Jesus' name. We are freed from the power of sin. We serve an amazing Savior. You can walk out these doors this morning and you can know you are strong, not in your flesh, not in your career, not in your bank account, not in how well behaved your children are. You are strong in the Lord Jesus Christ. Arm yourselves for battle. He is coming for you. Satan is trying to destroy you. He is trying to destroy this church. But we will be strong in the Lord. Let's be his people. Let's not be afraid. We don't walk around challenging Satan. We just simply take our stand. When his temptations come, we're strong in Christ. When the accusations come, we declare who we are in Christ. Would you stand with me this morning? I believe that the Spirit of God just wants to press into your heart this morning that you are free. You are free. You are not defined by your past sin. And even if you are struggling with addiction, even if you are struggling with the same sin over and over again, you, by the power of the Spirit living in you, because of what Christ has accomplished, you actually have the resources, not in yourself, but in Christ, to walk in freedom. Do you embrace that this morning? If so, let's pray together. Father, you know in my own life, I desperately need to be strong in the Lord. Lord, you know that there's been seasons of my life when, Lord, I feel like I've been enslaved to sin. And Lord, it's not when I pull myself up by my bootstraps that I get strong. It's when I stop relying on my own strength. It's when I stop pretending and start getting accountable. It's when I share my struggles with those around me so that they can love me and challenge me to live a godly life. Lord, your heart for every man, woman, and child, every young person in this room is to walk in freedom today. God, I pray that you would remind us of this message all week long, all life long, and that when temptation comes, we can simply say Jesus is better than that. And when accusations come, we can simply say that is not what God says about me. Strengthen us with your mighty power. I pray these things in your name. Amen.